Good evening, Hope. All right, here we go. Uh, it's always a challenge when you're uh, filling the pulpit. Uh, Pastor Tom obviously uh, does the heavy lifting, so Vic and I have tried or labored uh, to prepare uh, today's sermons. We're going to find ourselves in Deuteronomy, so you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, that'll be our text for this evening, uh, and we'll sort of work our way through uh, this evening's message uh, but really what we're trying to do is uh, argue the fact that uh, God is faithful. And so there are implications of that reality in which we will try to work through. But before I go any further, uh, I'll just pray for the message and ask that the, the Holy Spirit would aid uh, the preaching of God's Word this evening. Father in Heaven, we thank You for the gathering of Your people <clears throat> under Your Word. We ask that uh, as we expound the word as I, I give the message. May it be clear in all of its grandness of you pointing to you. Uh, we assume nothing but trust you for everything. And all this is for your glory and your people's sake. Amen. Amen. Now, of recent time I've had uh, some really big discussions around heritage. Uh, my father, who's probably going into his late 60s, one of the things he said or repeated in recent times, in recent conversations is, what happens when I die? Or rather, his message or his question to me is, Keith, here is my instructions for when I die. And so he's, I think he's 66 from memory, uh, and I've just turned 40. So the discussions have become really sober in the last, I would say, six months. Um, yes, he is growing older and his health is deteriorating, but what he's wanting to do is wake me up to the fact or the reality that he won't be here forever. And, I saw, and so what we're going to do tonight is look at Deuteronomy, which is, if you read it from cover to cover, it said that it's about a five-hour read. And so Moses, this is his last sermon to God's people. So he's standing east of the River Jordan, and he's giving a five-hour sermon based on what he wants the people of God or the Israelites to know and the instructions of which await them in regards to the promised land. So, I want to look at Deuteronomy and maybe just unpack a couple of things before we go into that verse. Now, if I were to ask you how many times do you think Deuteronomy is quoted in the New Testament, what would you say? Heaps of times, and that is true. It is the third most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. So if our Savior finds it important, and Paul and the Apostles find it important to quote Deuteronomy, that means we have to find it equally as important. Equally as important. And so my title for the message, if there was one, is Spiritual Heritage, which is a faithful God. For God's people, your heritage, you must know or teach your children or be reminded of is that you serve a faithful God. That's number one. So we're going to look at the implications of serving a faithful God. I'll just read that text whilst I have my Bible open to that chapter and verse. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love Him and keep His commandments. And all God's people say, Amen. Now, imagine Moses 
at the River Jordan. Right? He's almost there. It's been 40 years walking around a mountain and some other parts of geography in Israel. And we'll see tonight that he asked God, can I enter the promised land? Can I enter the promised land? And God basically says, don't ask it again. You're not doing it. It's not happening. So when you read Deuteronomy from, I guess, chapter 1, you start to recognize that Deuteronomy, it's, it's a pretty clunky, it doesn't look like it has some sequence, the ideas are a bit distorted, and you don't know what exactly Moses is doing with his last sermon. However, there is a shape to Deuteronomy which I think we should recognize early on in the piece. Now this is called a chiasm. Who here has heard of the word chiasm? There you go, brother. So chiasm is Greek, basically. It's a, it's, a liter, it's a literature device which introduces ideas, a sequence of ideas, and then repeats it on the back end to reinforce or mirror those ideas. So the way to look at it is if you looked at these stairs, right? Let's start from the bottom, one, two, three, and four. And then on the flip side, you have the same sequence of ideas, but the opposite four ideas going down. So a chiasm might be something like, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Or a chiasm might be, uh, man was created for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath created for man. So that's a chiasm. And in Deuteronomy, what you find is from chapter 1 through to chapter 34, it is a chiasm. Chapter 1 to 4 is history. It's all about Moses outlining the history of God's people. Chapters 5 to chapter 10 and verse 11 is warnings. Is warnings. Chapter 12 to chapter 16 and 17, verse, chapter 12 to chapter 16, verse 17, is laws to love God. And then at the top of this chiasm, you have laws for the prophets, the priests, and the kings. So Moses is laboring or trying to prepare God's people for one day being ruled by prophets, priests, and kings. He's preparing them for this idea. And then on the descent down, on the way down, chapters 19 to 25 is laws to love your neighbor. So remember, chapters 12 to 16 was laws to love God. And then on the flip side, is laws to love your neighbor. And then warnings from chapter 26 to 30. And then finally, a historical account uh, on chapters 31 to 34. So when we read or when we look at Deuteronomy, it's not just a, it's not a buffet of Moses just trying to hack it, the last ideas that he's, he can remember before he tells God's people that he's about to die. There is an intentionality about Moses and how he structures his last lecture or his last sermon. So if you can imagine someone that you love dearly, and some of you may have been in this experience where you might be with someone that you love that is maybe dying or your bedside with someone, most likely they will tell you or they will share or recount the things that are most important to them that they want to pass on. So as we study Deuteronomy this evening, this is Moses' last words albeit five hours. So if you complain about Tom doing an hour 15, think of or have a thought about the Israelites who had to stand maybe for five hours and listen to Moses 
give his last sermon. A grasp of history is important to every generation because it gives a sense of identity. If you know where you are and where you come from, this will make it easier discovering what you should be doing. A generation without identity is like a person without a birth certificate, a name or an address, or even a family. If we don't know our historical roots, we may become like the tumbleweeds that are blown here and there, never arriving at a destination. A father once took his son to a local museum, and he wanted to take his son for the purpose of showing his son what the world used to be like when he was a young child. So they're going through all the artifacts and they're looking at all these little things about uh, maybe the 50s, the 60s, the 40s. And then the son turns to his father and says, Dad, let's go somewhere where the people are real. I will argue this evening, or I'll try to labor over the fact that Deuteronomy or Moses or God's people is our heritage as believers. So when we read Deuteronomy, it's not looking at it as that's just the nation Israel, that's Moses, that's going through Moab, that's the river. That, that, it's us. It's us. Through the eyes of faith, it is the church today. And that is our heritage spiritually. And it will give us some grounding. It should give you hope to look at the stories that we're about to look at and go, what an amazing God we serve. More or less, what a faithful God we serve. The Old Testament is preparation, or Deuteronomy in this case, is preparation so that when Jesus arrives, we should understand him. When we say prophet, priest, king, it's important we know what those terms mean and why Christ fulfills them and why that's important for us. A church doesn't replace or displace Israel, but fulfills Israel. Israel, or the Old Testament, is not history. It is our history. Through the eyes of faith, we have to read it as if it is our history as God's people. <clears throat> Peter says that the church is a holy nation. We'll find that in chapter 7 this evening. Paul says to the church in, to the church in Philippi that we are citizens of heaven. <clears throat> John 1.17, if you just want to turn there quickly, <clears throat> John chapter 1, verse 17. What I want us to see is the sequence or the continuity between Moses and and Jesus, <clears throat> the continuity between Moses and Jesus. <clears throat> I'm reading from the NASB, uh, and it reads like this. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Moses gave us grace and truth in the law, but Jesus gave the fullness of grace and truth in him. <clears throat> and so therefore it is important to recognize out the gate that Deuteronomy doesn't, is not somewhat uh, a lesser citizen to the new covenant. It is just as equally important to Jesus, because he quotes it, and we'll go through that, as it, and it should be equally as important to us this evening. <clears throat> so therefore, I put forward to you that <clears throat> maybe this evening, after our sermon, it is a desire of yours to study an Old Testament book, to study your spiritual heritage and where all of these realities and truths come from. 
<clears throat> Hebrews 12, 29. I'll go through these quickly. For our God is a consuming fire. Who's heard that before? Guess where it comes from? Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Mark 12, 32. And the scribe said to him, Well, said teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no other besides him. Guess where that comes from? Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Matthew 15, 4. For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and the one who speaks evil of, fa of the father or mother will be put to death. Again, this is becoming clockwork. Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Ephesians, let's go to Paul. Again, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. <clears throat> Luke 18, 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not give false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Romans 10.6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven. Guess where all this comes from? Deuteronomy. And therefore, I put forward to you, it is important that we recognize that our heritage fundamentally is in the Old Testament. Is in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so, chiasm. What's that all about? In chapter 7, this falls under the particular section of the chiasm called warnings. Warnings. Chapters 5, 9, and 10 are warnings from Mount Sinai. Chapter 6 is warnings in relation to the family. Chapter 7 is warnings in relation to Israel's relationship with the surrounding nations. And then chapter 8 is Israel as a nation, warnings as Israel as a nation. Let's go back to the text again. Know therefore, this is chapter 7, verse 9, that the Lord your God, He is faithful. The faithful God who keeps His covenant and His faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love Him and keep His commandments. <clears throat> now, how did we get here? Why is Moses saying that God is faithful? Generationally faithful. How did we get here? Well, it's an easy exercise. So, again, we'll, we'll look at some text as we go along. <clears throat> uh, this is the 40th year in which he's proclaiming this. So he's standing east of the Jordan, and he's been told explicitly by God, you are not to enter the promised land. But before all of this took place, we look at chapter 1 in Deuteronomy, and we're going to go through these quickly. And it says in verse 2, it is 11 days journey. This is where... Job, sorry, Job, this is where Moses is preaching his last sermon. It's 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Sire to Kadesh Barnea. Now, if you're, a, if you're studious, you're going, wait, 11 days from Mount Sinai. How does 11 days go from, sorry, how does 11 days end up 40 years? So think about that. A week and some change. Let's call it two weeks at most, depending on how many children you're taking with you. This journey from Mount Sinai, from when they received the law of God to where they are on the cusp of entering the promised land is an 11-day hike. But Moses is saying these words 30, 38, 40 years, 40 some years later. So when he says God is faithful, he's got some data about faithfulness. He's got some data. So in those 40 years, he knows what it's like 
to serve a faithful God. Because really, it should have been just an 11-day journey. All things being equal, the Israelites being obedient, <clears throat> not being doubtful, not bowing down to different idols. It should have just taken 11 days. But here we find in verse 2 of chapter 1 that uh, obviously it's, it's not that. If we go to verse 19, verse 19, so what, we, what I'm trying to do is just take you through the journey of the Israelites up until chapter 7, verse 9. Verse 19 of chapter 1 says, Then we set from Horeb and went through all the great and terrible wilderness that you saw on the way of the hill country, the Amorites. Just as the Lord our God had commanded us, we came to Kadesh Barnea. So here we find, this is again, the history. Moses giving the history of the journey of God's people. He had received the, the message or the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And then he was told to go, to journey, to move north, to move north. Verse 26 of chapter 1, we continue. Yet, and this is when it gets interesting, yet you are unwilling to go up instead. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. When God instructs His people to look or to spy, to see what is out there, the land of milk and honey, guess what God's people do? They're too big. They're too strong. So now you're starting to get an idea. If you are a parent and you give your child an instruction, and the first thing they might do is they might doubt you or say, look, I don't think you're telling the truth. I think you're lying, Mama Dad. Humanly speaking, that would result in frustration. It would just boil over and boil over and boil over. We're starting to get a picture here of God's people or Israelites saying, look, what you did in Egypt, yeah. What does that tell us about our own hearts? Are we not the same? Do we doubt God? Does He remain faithful when we doubt Him? Or does He, like a human parent, turn away to go, just because you've done that, I'll do this instead. Let's go to verse 30. Chapter 1, The Lord your God goes down before you, will Himself fight for you, just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as man carries his son, on all of the road which you have walked until you came to this place. Verse 32, Yet in spite of all this, you did not trust your God. So in spite of everything that God has done, the examples, the mighty works of His right hand, the Israelites continue to show a distrust in a faithful God. Verse 34, Then the Lord heard the sound of your words. He was angry and swore an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers. And here is where things start to get real. <clears throat> you have Moses preaching his final sermon, and this generation that were kids when this, this journey started, are about to die. And so largely you have a generation of Israelites that are young. They're about to inherit the land. They're about to inherit the promise. Verse 32, 
These are the two key people that will get to see the promised land from the older generation. We are introduced to Caleb, the son of Jehuneh. He will see it, and to him I will give the land. In verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, shall himself enter. Encourage him, for he will give it, for he will give it to Israel as a inheritance. If you're reading Deuteronomy in your own study in the future, one thing I will stress for you to see is that what we're referring to or what Moses is speaking about, it's a leadership issue. It's a leadership issue. You've got largely a generation of young people going into the promised land, and guess what? They need to be led. They don't have the, the wares. They don't have the kilometers on their tires. They've only heard from the stories about what they, the parents saw, God's greatest works. And so fundamentally, I think one implication of this story is that the need for good leaders in the local church, the need for good leaders in the local church, this is critical to the text. Uh, let's go to chapter 2, um, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, and <clears throat> we'll go to verse 3. Then we turned and set for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to me, and we circled Mount Sire for many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north. It's important to note there that uh, because of their disobedience and their lack of faith and distrust in God, they spent a good number of years, or in this, my, my translation says days, Circling a what? A mountain. How frustrating is that? Just to circle a mountain for years. That's what sin does. Habitual sin, if you don't repent, if you don't turn the other way, you are circling a mountain. You are circling a mountain. <clears throat> and so it's important that we recognize the spiritual realities of what the Israelites are doing are very real and very applicable for us this evening. We'll keep moving. Uh, verse 14, chapter 2. Now the time came when they took us, uh, when they, for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we cross the Wadiya Zered and 38 years until, was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp, just at the Lord, as the Lord had sworn to them. <clears throat> this is when Moses realizes, and most of God's people should realize, that what God says, He will do. He's not out here to play games. Our Lord is very much in the business of keeping His word. He is faithful both in the negative and the positive. So now we know in the account of Moses that the generation that God promised not too far, not too long before, uh, in chapter 1, they have now or are perishing. All that generation are now perishing. Again, just reminding us why we're laboring or toiling over these events is because we need to answer the question, what got us to this point where God says He's faithful? He's faithful. Let's go to chapter 3. Um, thanks for your patience as we go through some of these <clears throat> events on this timeline and let's go to verse 25 
and 26. This is a crisis point. And I think this has implications for us and maybe even deep encouragement this evening. Please let me cross. This is Moses. Please let me cross over and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. Verse 26, but the Lord was angry with me on your account. Do not listen to me. Instead, the Lord said to me, enough. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. So Moses, on the cusp of the promised land, just seeing the, <clears throat> the land of milk and honey, smelling the fresh air, seeing all of the fruits which the land could one day grow to harvest, the cities, the possibilities, the opportunities, flowing with everything that a man could desire and want. And God says to him, enough, don't bring this up again. I've already said it. You are not entering the promised land. And I think here it's a good time to stop, to recognize that although Moses is stopped from entering the promised land, he dies just before the promised land. In that interaction, one thing we should recognize is that his death led to God's people entering the promised land. So it is with Christ. Because of his death, we just recently celebrated his death and resurrection and ascension. We now, his people, get to enter heaven. So it's almost as if it's a foreshadow of the true and better Moses. Moses doesn't enter in the promised land himself. So the better version of that, there has to be a prophet. There has to be a priest. There has to be a king that dies and allows God's people to enter. And to that, we can only say there's only one. Christ, our risen Savior. Because of his death, we are now able to enter into his glorious kingdom one day. What a reality. Let's go to chapter 4. Uh, let's go to verse 9. <clears throat> verse 9. Only be careful for yourself and watch over your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. This is where we see Moses start to ramp up this idea of heritage, the importance of passing on God's truth. And my call to action to all of us, including those who are getting married, those who have children, those who are expecting children, those who pray for children, one of the things we should recognize immediately is what Moses counseled is to God's people. Be diligent. Watch over your soul. Don't let these things depart from you. Make them known to your sons and your grandsons. And this includes girls, by the way. It's order. So it's nothing to do with just tell your sons. Ignore your daughters. It is everything to do with making sure that the next generation know about this God. Verse 15 of chapter 4, again. So be very careful yourselves, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, or Mount Sinai, from the midst of the fire. It's interesting to note that this is a warning or cautionary tale to us. God does not show himself in a form to be made an idol. 
us as humans, we're very good at making idols. If not for the idol itself, we will even use the gold that surrounds the idol. Because the gold then becomes, oh, look, coins. It should be used for exchange. And all of a sudden, we're finding ways to create more and more idols. It's also interesting to note in this particular verse that no one knows where Moses was buried. So why do you think that is? I think that God is pretty wise. And this counsel is beyond anyone to know that if Moses' burial site was known to humankind or to mankind, we would find ways to bow down to it. We'll find an excuse to bow down to it. So in the same vein, where God has no form, it is important to also recognize that our Savior included <clears throat> did not leave anything behind. Some religions like to create paintings or make statues of what Jesus looked like. Just if I could imagine what he looked like. But that is not of the faith of the Savior. We do not need to hold or see anything in its manifestation. All we need is eyes of faith. And then chapter 5, finally we're here. We're starting to get there. Thanks for your patience. This is where Moses turns up the ratchet and he changes the switch gears, switches gears, sorry, into what we now call the warnings as part of the chiasm. This is the section where he begins about warnings. And in chapter 5, he goes into chapter 6 just because of time. I'm not going to uh, spend too much time, but chapter 6 is his first set of Second story, second set of warnings, predominantly to do with families. Verse 4 of chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, He is God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your strength. These words which I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. And then later on in the text, Moses implores God's people to begin in the family home. Begin in the family home. There's implications of blessing and of also warning where faithfulness is forgotten, where you do not do this in your homes. So young people, old people, everyone in between, the call is the same. We must be faithful to begin in our homes in proclamation of the gospel, in proclamation of God's faithfulness. If we do not share or tell this or reinforce this in our homes, do not be surprised that they come home, what? Evolutionists, that's one, we'll take it. Do not be surprised if they come home with Steve and not Eve. These are re the realities of what we're dealing with. The next generations have to know who God is. Otherwise, again, like Balkum says, you send your kids or children to Caesar and they turn out as Romans. This is the same implications of the warnings of beginning in the home. And then in chapter 7, finally, we heal. And then we'll go into some application very shortly. Verse 9, again, I'll read it. Therefore, the Lord your God, He is faithful. He keeps His covenant, His faithfulness to a thousand generations. Now you're starting to see how we got here. You're harking back to Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, now to Moses. This is generation on generation. And you think about all that happened in human history between Abraham and Moses, you start to see 
that we have a faithful God in the picture. You think about all the unfaithfulness that all these great men and women precluded to, accepted, idols they worship, profusely deciding to go against God's word, not trusting him. Now we get some weight or hopefully some recognition or appreciation of who God is and how faithful he is to the people of God. So even if we stopped here at verse 9 of chapter 7 and said, that's the application, God is faithful, we should be well and truly full. But we won't do that. I think uh, for the sake of time, I'll try to work my way quickly through what remains of this evening. Now, the question I need to ask us is two questions I need to ask us. How is God's faithfulness pictured in relation to the world? So you have God's people now at the cusp or the east of the Jordan River ready to go into the promised land. They know God has been faithful for generations on generations from their fathers, fathers, fathers. Yet, it is important to recognize we as God's people or His church today should appreciate His faithfulness in respect to the nations around us. So I put forward to you the nations around us, not necessarily our neighbors in Indonesia, not necessarily our neighbors in Papua New Guinea, not necessarily our neighbors in Malaysia, and, this, and you can go on and on, but rather the nations around us imply that there are idols in those nations, like the Moabites, like the Canaanites. Idolatry was one of, if not the biggest threat to God's people. And we know that because in verse 6 of chapter 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for your personal possession, for his personal possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then verse 14, You shall be blessed, this is chapter 7, You shall be blessed above all peoples. There, are, there will be no sterile male or infertile female among you and among the cattle. <clears throat> if you read on, you'll, you'll find that uh, later on in Deuteronomy, Moses gives counsel for how to go to war. For how to go to war. Because Moses recognizes that even in the land that is promised to them, there will be issues of the neighboring countries. And the neighboring countries bring idolatry and idols. So that's the first thing we must recognize in relation to God's people and the nations that surround them. One thing you have to be cognizant of is what are the idols that you face today? What are the idols that surround you? It could be anything from money to status to a relationship. Some marriages are pedestaled so much that they replace any good order. So recognize that, number one. Number two, the second question we ask ourselves this evening is how do we view God's faithfulness as it relates to His great and precious promises made for His people to give us security? To give us security. Number one, uh, sorry, uh, the answer to that is in two parts. The first part is it is given to us as a great and eternal security for the pardon of our sins. For the pardon of our sins. So if you look at the people of Israel, do not just look at it as a logistical challenge to move into a new country, to set up shop, build a, a local supermarket. It's not so much that. 
What we find in God's faithfulness up until this point is that it gives us precious promises to our security, but that security is most profoundly established in the forgiveness of our sins. In the forgiveness of our sins. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our greatest danger comes from sin. Guilt is a fountain of tears. Pardon produces courage. And God's faithfulness in the covenant is, as it were, the pardon office, where you and I go in every day. We should be in there the whole day. Might as well camp in there to get a discharge and become acquitted. The second part to that answer is that it engages the perseverance of the saints and their continued journey in ways that God sometimes works in the most hazardous times, the most hazardous times. This is a great encouragement for us. In Deuteronomy 7.21, we can just go there quickly. <clears throat> you are not terrified to be terrified of them. This is speaking of the nations that surround them. Because the Lord your God is in your midst. <clears throat> this is why we should be encouraged this evening. Why we should persevere. That reality is found in verse 21. Because the Lord your God is in your midst. Is there anything greater than to know that God is with you, saints? I think this is what Jesus was thinking or saying when he gave us the Great Commission. Go to the ends of the world, ends of the earth, for there I am with you. What a blessing to know that our God, wherever we traverse, wherever we travel, we're called to missions, if you're called to if you go down to 7-Eleven, God is there with you. What a promise and what a comfort. <clears throat> and finally, this evening, just as I wrap up, two points, well, three points of application. We'll go three. <clears throat> Number one, what does this all mean to us at Hope Reformed Baptist Church? What are the implications of knowing that God is faithful? What are the implications of knowing that our spiritual heritage is that of God's people traversing into the promised land? Number one, the first is based upon the nature of God. Turn to First Timothy <clears throat> chapter, chapter 1. <clears throat> I've just had a typo here, so my apologies, it's not first Timothy. Um, come back to that uh, my memory serves me correct we'll come back to that uh, numbers let's go to numbers rather numbers 2319 numbers 2319 <clears throat> so these are the points of application of the reality of your spiritual heritage in God the faithful God numbers 2319 <clears throat> 
the Nasby reads, God is not a man that he would lie, nor a son of man that he would change his mind. Has he said, and he will, will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? There's not much more to add to that, but to know that God is faithful, because unlike us, he does not lie. God is faithful, because unlike us, he makes everything that he says come to good. That's the first application point. <clears throat> Whenever you're in seasons of doubt, Whenever you're in seasons of uh, anger or whatever the emotion may be, one thing we must always rely on is God's promises. Um, I have this little book uh, at home by Spurgeon. It's a little devotional. It's called The Promises of God. I cannot tell you, first of all, he's a genius, but um, second of all, he can take three words and create a sermon. And, and some mornings where uh, things are pressed in and I'm feeling uh, a bit hard to sort of, how do I get around a situation like this, this, and this? I'll pick up that book, I'll read it, and within two minutes, the, just the, the, serene, the, the calm, serene peace of God just sets in because you know God's promises are not like man's. You know that he's faithful to his word. You know that though you may not see it, he is at work. Those are the implications of a faithful God because at the end of the day, he cannot lie. He cannot lie. <clears throat> so, what else is my question this evening? What else would you expect or require of a person you can trust? If you know that God is faithful, if you know that he cannot lie, if you know that he is good for his word, if you know that he will always do what he says, what else do you expect of a God who can be trusted? Is there nothing else? That's the heritage in which we have and we should remember. Number two, this is the second point of application. <clears throat> this, uh, the second one is grounded in the, the encouragement and the experiences of former believers or others as yourself. It's always important to recognize that when we talk to people that we love and respect or are being mentored by, one question I always ask them is, how has God been faithful in your life? How have you seen God's faithfulness being displayed on the front street? Why do I ask that question? Because I need as much hope as they do. So I'm always looking for the older generation. That's a real thing for me a real habit, where I try to look for all the people who've gone with or walk with the Lord <clears throat> for such a time where another thing seems to faze them anymore. You just look at him and you know that man's walked with God for a long time or that woman's walked with God for a long time. And I want that. I want to be that Israelite or that child about to enter the promised land and I want to know that Moses and Caleb and Joshua are there. Right? I'm not foolish to, to say that I know everything. So it's very imperative for me to lean on the saints that have gone before. To, or as, as we say sometimes, to stand on the shoulders of giants that have gone before us. And it helps if I can sit across them and eyeball them. It's good to read about Spurgeon. It's good to read about John G. Payne and Vanuatu. It's good to read about all these great missionaries 
But at the end of the day, I much prefer talking to a saint that I can eyeball to say, hey, tell me about God's faithfulness. Is this faith real? And how has it been displayed in your life? And number three, a final point of application. Let's go there. Deuteronomy, and we'll close on this. 18. 1818. Deuteronomy 1818. This is our final point of application. And I'll start from verse 15 um, just to give us some runway. If you're there, just read with me. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like from among you from your countrymen to him who you shall listen this is in accordance with everything that you have asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly saying do not let me hear the voice of the Lord my God again and do not let me see the great fire anymore for I will die and the Lord said to me they have spoken well verse 18 I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I have commanded him. This is prophetic because we know about generations and generations later, Jesus is that prophet that God raises. Jesus is the one whom gives account or speaks everything that is commanded of him from the Father. So, although Moses, although Joshua, although Caleb, although David, and all the line of judges and kings to follow could not ultimately fulfill what Moses foreshadowed or foretold to God's people, we finally find that it was fulfilled in Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, the true and better Moses, the true and better Joshua, the true and better Caleb, you name it, you can run that list down. This is the spiritual heritage, friends, that we have as those who love God. The spiritual heritage that we have is that we have a faithful God who sees us, but not only does he see us, he's faithful to keep every dot and tittle of his word. And one day I hope to all see you when he returns and the new heavens and the new earth are revealed, that day I look forward to, to see the saints that waited for 40 years, that disobeyed for 40 years. And I the same. I turned 40 this year, and I'm sure I've disobeyed for just as long. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the graciousness of the stories in Deuteronomy. We see God's people rebel. We see them uh, cycle, just walk around a mountain for 38 years. We see Moses, although a titan in the faith, his last sermon, he recognizes that there is still to come someone that will fulfill all three offices unto utter perfection. Thank you, Lord, that we are in the new covenant. We are not brave or brash or proud enough to say that these, uh, these words don't mean anything. If tonight, if anything, we recognize that this heritage that we hold in Christ Jesus comes from somewhere and it comes from your truth even in the old testament lord we pray for those of you who are in the audience that may have not bowed the knee yet 
to this God that we serve. We pray that they would recognize that there is only one true God amongst all other gods, and they may be called to repentance, and to know that that repentance will be made true, will be called upon, will be justified. We know that, Lord, you have promised that you would give yourself a savior, that you would give yourself someone to mediate, to be a propitiation, and that is your son. Lord, that offering is free to those who repent and believe. Father, enable those who are maybe hard-hearted, uh, or maybe in seasons of sin, may they come to you and recognize that you are faithful, that you have been so patient to them. This we trust for your glory and for the name that is above all names and God's people say, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.